Brittany Packett said, an ally shows up when it is convenient, an accomplice shows up when there is a risk. I am Tamara Ross, and this is Ally to Accomplice. Take a risk and join me on a learning journey where we will hear from smart and generous individuals who will help guide us to use our power and privilege to challenge the status quo and create equitably inclusive spaces for all. Once you have seen injustice, you can't unsee it. We are obliged to act. This podcast is being recorded in the Treaty 7 region, the traditional territories of the Blackfoot Confederacy, Stony Nakoda Nation, the Tsutina Nation, and the Métis Nation Region 3. I am grateful as a white settler with privilege that I live, work, and play here, and strive to live in right relations to all those human and non-human who call this place home. I want to take a moment here to acknowledge the 215 children who were just the first finding of children who died in residential schools and buried in neglected graves. Unfortunately, this is only the beginning of what will be thousands of children who went to residential schools and whose bodies were never returned home. We need to support and help those communities like the Kamloops Swaboam First Nation who choose to piece some of that history together and respect the wishes of those who find it too painful to do so. This interview was recorded weeks before this atrocity came to light, otherwise I am sure it would have consumed our interview. Dr. Troy Patinode, PhD, is an art and cultural historian, curator, experiential educator, and hiking guide with a passion for projects that help make Canada a more just and resilient place. He was born in Anishinaabek ancestral lands, now covered over by the Robinson, Huron, and Williams Treaties. His mom's side of the family is of British settler colonial descent, and his dad's side of the family is from a community that is at the moment part of the Georgian Bay Métis community. For the past 20 years, Troy has been facilitating cross-cultural sharing and outdoor education programs concerning the effects of colonization, mainly throughout Blackfoot, Sutina, Ehare Nakoda, and Métis Nation of Alberta Region 3 lands, now covered over by Treaty 7. More recently, Troy has curated major exhibitions throughout Alberta, including Treaty 7 in Calgary and The Dream We Form by Being Together, the official Canada 150 exhibition at the Alberta Legislature in Edmonton. Troy is currently the Director of Cultural Development at Fort Calgary Natural Historic Site and as an instructor at the Alberta University of the Arts. Welcome, Troy. It's lovely to be speaking with you today. Can we start by having you talk a bit about your work at Fort Calgary? Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for having me. I do feel honored to have been invited, so thank you. So my work at Fort Calgary, I've been there since January of 2015, and my role actually is sort of morphed in some ways ever since. I've been the Director of Cultural Development there for two and a half years, but about Mm -hmm. half that time now, I've been in this role as a Director of Cultural Development. And that was kind of a neat role and is a neat role to to be in because the CEO at the time that created this position really allowed me to kind of co-create it with her. Fort Calgary had never had anyone in, in a role like this before. How I saw being able to fit into the fort and the fort's future direction with its new museum coming down the road in a couple of years. Director of Cultural Development role. A big part of it is I'm like a liaison between Fort Calgary and representatives from each of the Treaty 7 nations and the Métis Nation of Alberta Region 3. Together, we're creating from the ground up brand new exhibits 
each of the nations will have space in the new museum for their own new exhibits in their own words, whatever they would like to share and however they would like to share it. And so that too has never happened at Fort Calgary. So a big part of my job has been working with each of the reps from those nations in creating exhibit briefs, talking about how we can translate certain ideas that elders, knowledge keepers, and other community members have for their exhibits into an exhibit format in a way. The other parts are liaising on other elements of programming at the fort. So that might be with the Learning Center on Education Programs for School, liaising with certain people in the Learning Center, connecting them with people out in the nations or helping set up opportunities to have schools interact with elders, help facilitate internal staff training and learning Hmm. programs so that our Fort Calgary staff can learn about Indigenous histories in the area, but also just in general about contemporary Indigenous relations and what that all means for us as a museum, as Canadian citizens in general. I'm going to quote from the Fort Calgary board chair, Robin Lee. This is an exciting time for our city and our country as we all hear the call to action from the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Each of us have a role to play, as do museums and other public spaces. Fort Calgary will play a leading role in sharing the stories and truths of our history and this site. Can you speak to the importance of the board and executive level being on board, for lack of a better word, in authentically moving this forward and in being able to do a historic shift in your programming? Yeah, great question. I absolutely think it's it's integral to it. Things could happen perhaps along the way without board or leadership input or support, but it would be much, much slower. There are certain things that come up, and if you don't have board support on it, you can feel that you're just taking two steps back. And then with board support, it just feels smoother. It's like you can kind of yeah. keep progressing a little bit more smoothly. Has it been difficult having... People come to terms with the history, our Canada's history with Indigenous peoples, and what Fort Calgary's role in in that was. Yes, with some, definitely there's been external presentations I've given around Calgary or with other organizations. You definitely have people in the audiences that yell back at you or disagree with you and what Mm -hmm. you say because it's so new that it's treated as though this is just some fad of indigenous propaganda let us go back to our normal lives kind of a thing without Mm -hmm. realizing that there's way more to it than that it's not just a fad these are realities that we live in and it's about time that we hold ourselves and our society responsible and just take responsibility for these things that have real life effects for people and, and cultures There are certainly uh, many other people as well who aren't resistant and are really open to listening and clearly are walking some of the talk. They say they care, but they're also really actively trying to think of creative ways to behave or do their work differently. What's the most difficult part of your work and what's the Mm -hmm. most rewarding? Sometimes people just are not willing or open to see certain truths about Canada or about their own ancestors. And so that can be challenging when that happens. And in some ways that ties into some of the rewarding parts of this job where you have encounters with people who at first might be really adamant that Canada is all sunshine and rainbows, so to speak. And 
So some of the rewarding parts are, are helping people like that actually learn about something new. And when you see people on their own going out and picking up a book that they might not have ever done before, or when you see people in your own office or organization thinking about doing something a little bit differently and bringing some creativity into their jobs without me always having to say, well, why don't we do this with the truth and reconciliation framework? Why don't we think of indigenous people here that like when people start doing that on their own without always having me having to come in and instigate something, that's the rewarding part of my job. Yeah, I love that. I'm going to jump into what might be a really loaded question. Your PhD thesis, Decolonizing the Story of Art in Canada, a storied approach to art for an intercultural, more than human world, sounds incredible to me. Can you speak a little bit to, to what it was about or what it was touching on? My mom's an artist and I grew up with, with art all around me. And really one of my first loves when I got into university was art history and learning about art. And although I, I myself am a creative person and love doing and, and creating art myself, I never got into it in, in any kind of a professional kind of a way at all. As I got into my university classes, learning more about Indigenous histories and contemporary Indigenous relations in Canada and how my, my own family relates to these big topics and conversations, the deeper I got into it, I just suddenly started to see colonialism and neo-colonialism colonialism everywhere I looked. Even in things that I loved, it was just embedded there. It, it was just in so much of our systems, our, whether educational systems, healthcare systems, political systems, whatever system that you want to talk about, there's these neo-colonial elements so embedded, and I just started to be able to just see them, it seemed like everywhere. And so one of those areas was the Canadian art world. I just saw how deeply embedded Eurocentric and neo-colonial ideas really in a lot of ways drive our entire approach to art, how we think about it, how we value it, what has value as a great artwork or whatnot, what has enough value to be something that we're saying, oh, well, this is an important artwork or artist in the narrative of Canadian art and Canadian history. This is who we are. So who, who are those artists that we're putting up on that kind of pedestal in letting them be these integral contributors to this Canadian story that's told through art and mm. this Canadian identity that we're told through our artworks. I tried to find a way to contribute to this conversation in a way that wasn't always so beholden to European ways of understanding art and teaching art and valuing it in our society. And so I basically chose three seminal moments within the master narrative of Canadian art that students everywhere get taught about our artwork yeah. in Canada. Then after we could identify those mechanisms of colonialism and those key places that neo-colonial ideas and Eurocentric ideas kept cropping up, I tried to find a way to unlearn them, to try to try to talk about those artworks without being so beholden on those European, mm -hmm. Euro-Canadian ways of, of understanding those things. And so that's where I brought more into the whole conversation, Indigenous voices, Indigenous methodologies in how to understand art, definitely going through that process taught me a lot as well about how to look at art and new ways to think about it. Why do you feel the arts is uniquely poised to show us injustice and move the viewer to address it? I think it has to do with this idea of creativity and thinking 
outside the box, thinking beyond the margins and horizons and frames that we're usually working within in our jobs, in our organizations, in our, the systems that we're in. And I feel artists and artworks are really well, a great way to, to do that, to help invite us into thinking about something differently, to thinking beyond the horizons of limitation that we have in whatever area of life that we're working in. I feel like this work of truth, justice, and reconciliation, a lot of it I'm coming to learn comes down to being able to be really, really creative in your daily life today. So I feel that artists' artworks can not only help us and in, by inviting us into new headspaces and ways mm -hmm. of thinking and relating to the world, but they're also great examples of how powerful the things that we can be doing can be if we bring a little creativity to it. If we bring some new kind of creativity to it that really is rooted in envisioning a new kind of future. Can you talk a little bit about the, uh, the Cross River Wilderness Centre? That's a family-run retreat centre that we've had since the early 90s. It's located in the Rocky Mountains just outside of Kootenai National Park on traditional Tunaka territory, overlapping with Nakoda territories and Blackfoot territories. It, it really evolved organically at first. My family, we're all from Northern Ontario originally, from around the Upper Great Lakes. I was born in North Bay, but we grew up and lived in a small little French town just outside of North Bay at the time. And our house, it was in the middle of the bush. It was just always part of our family to grow up in that kind of a lifestyle. It was always a, a dream of my parents to be able to have a deeper kind of link and life related to the more than human world. I'd say it's a retreat center where people can come and work dipping in a little bit deeper to actually learning how to relate differently to the to the more than human world. And so we brought an element of that into it, the educational pieces. And for that, we worked in collaboration with different Indigenous organizations and incredible Indigenous people in the area, facilitating different programs and offering different experiences for people. You've talked a bit about your upbringing, and I can see that that may have or probably did have a large influence in bringing you to this work. Was it something over time that brought you to this work or was there a singular moment that you can think of that mm. said, I, I need to do this because it's the right thing to do? Good question. I think it feels like to me, it, it more evolved in that direction. And the reason why I say that is because I think the interest started with just learning about my own family's ancestry back when I was a young teenager. I want to learn about my own family and I want to feel like I know more about my own ancestors. And so that's kind of where it started. And that kind of evolved over, over the years into more of a career organizational kind of thing. It started out working with contemporary Indigenous relations and the work of truth, justice, and reconciliation through youth work. So in my early 20s, I always loved being outdoors and out on the land. And at the same time, I was really interested in learning more about my own ancestry and, and heritage. And, and that kind of led me to organizations who were doing land-based and culture-based work, bringing youth out on the land and bringing in a cultural element somehow, reconnecting youth to elders in their communities. And doing that deepened my 
understanding about how deep these colonial and neo-colonial ideologies and practices and behaviors that are just embedded in, in everything we do, how deep those really go. I'd be working with these youth out in the field and just learning about their day-to-day -day lives and their experiences and their realities. It really brought me face to face in a clear, big way for the first time in my life, I think that, wow, there's a lot in Canada that we don't know about Canada. And there's a lot underneath the surface here that is not all good that the Canadian narrative and story kind of makes us think is is not there or that that everything is all good and that we're all one big happy family but that yeah. there's way more truths a lot deeper here that, that is being hidden from us sometimes very consciously as part of social design and it's the youth work that really sh showed me bright and clear that we're not being told the whole truth here and that wasn't right so I, I knew that I wanted to continue on in that kind of line of work to do my part, help make Canada a more just and resilient place for everyone. In 2017, you curated an exhibition at the fort called Treaty 7 Exhibition for Reconciliation and also at the Legislative Assembly in Edmonton called Canada 150 Exhibition for Reconciliation. Can you speak <laughs> about these exhibitions and their importance, where they were and when they were? The impetus for both was that Canada was fast approaching the anniversary of 150 years from Confederation, Canada's 150th birthday, so to speak. At that point, I was still the manager of special events and visitor experiences. Part of in that role was setting up Canada Day events in connection and not really in collaboration with other organizations all around the downtown core of Calgary mm -hmm. so that we could help organize our events in such a way where there was a flow to it that it kind of connected but we weren't overlapping with what others yeah. were doing and I just became really disheartened with the approach everything just seemed to be so celebratory because yeah. it's it's celebrating Canada which in and of itself seems so you know, great. And it like, why wouldn't you want to celebrate your nation? But it's without the deep awareness piece associated with that, that those like colonial and neo-colonial things embedded within that, how Canada got here, confederation to begin with, how that was only able to happen on the backs of Indigenous people and, you know, generations and generations of cultural genocide also happening. I mean, there was no awareness given and that wasn't coming up in anyone's ideas it mm. was all just about celebrating 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 and it seemed like a real blind kind of celebration to me I came home after one of my meetings and just said I wish there was something big that I could do that could bring the other side of the story into this whole conversation of celebrating Canada 150 I, I remember thinking like a joke oh it'd be so funny if we could actually get the treaty here so we could yeah. actually teach people that we would have no Canada 150 and Canada the way we know it without this here first. After a while, it just it dawned on me. Why like not? That. So I sent some emails to the National Archives in Ottawa and at first was not completely dismissed, but definitely they did not raise my hopes up at being able to get the actual treaty document. It was old and it was all in inks that were really sensitive to light. And I got sent to, well, maybe contact this person to, to see if they have a different opinion. Or, and then, then that person was 
said, well, maybe I'll put you in touch with this person, right? This person is the person to ask, maybe we can work something out. And so after emailing back and forth like Mm -hmm. that for the course of a month, eventually I got an email from someone and they still weren't letting me get my hopes up at all, but they kind of ended the email with the question, well, how would you make this work? What Mm -hmm. sorts of security would you have? So then I thought, oh, well, they wouldn't be asking me that if they weren't seriously considering this. And so Mm -hmm. then, as they say, the, the rest is history from then on. And it all came together somewhat quickly, I'd say, Mm -hmm. from that point on, but we were already running out of time. So we knew that we had to still plan this entire exhibition around this document. And I didn't get formal approval that we were actually going to get the oh loan God. of the actual Treaty 7 document until like late February or March. Oh. Luckily, in a way, the whole exhibit was just the, the treaty document itself. So mm-hmm. it was a small exhibit, but we still had to d- design something around it. We tied in a school program with the Learning Center for it as well. So those things we pulled together in just a matter of few months so that we could open the exhibit on National Indigenous Peoples Day. The exhibit up in Edmonton Again, impetus, Canada 150, but a little bit of a different route Mm. on the way. I was actually awarded, right before I got the job at Fort Calgary, the Emerging Curator Fellowship from the Alberta Foundation of the Arts. We had to present an idea that brought a new creative approach to thinking about the provincial Mm. art collection that is in the hands of the Alberta Foundation of the Arts, but on behalf of citizens in Alberta. So my idea was essentially always about bringing an approach of looking at these artworks differently so that we could learn how to live better together with other kinds of lives and beings that we were sharing this place that we that we call Alberta now. Mm. And so the artworks that that were chose from the provincial collection, I staged them and reframed them in the exhibition as how as Albertans can we all together learn from these artworks about contemporary Indigenous relations and how can these artworks lead us into perhaps the work of truth, justice and reconciliation in some way. And so I juxtaposed each artwork with one of the calls to action from the Truth and Reconciliation Uh Commission's final report or an article from the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People, and then had people share about that so people could interact with other people's impressions of seeing these artworks hung side by side with a call to action or an article from the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People. What do you think makes a good ally? I think it just starts with you know, an open-mindedness, a willingness to learn about contemporary Indigenous relations, but also how your own presence and your own training and your own education might contain within it embedded things that actually reinforce those harms that you're learning about. And so it's not just about thinking of this work, maybe you call it the work of reconciliation or truth, justice and reconciliation, not thinking about it as an Indigenous thing, but now really being willing to start identifying within your own past, your own ancestry, your own way of learning, your own organization, your own community, ways that those harmful ideas and practices are embedded in those things. I I feel like that's kind of at the core of being an ally is the willingness to go there and do that kind of educational process about the world externally, but also internally. So then what action could we undertake that would move ourselves from being allies to being accomplices? 
for me, it comes back a little bit to that notion of creativity I was talking about before. After you've identified these places in your own life or history or community, your own reality, where colonialism still shows up, now don't just sit there and okay, yeah, it's there. And then just let it stay there. Now that you know that there's this mechanism of colonialism present in the things you do and the things you're a part of, now go about and try to create something that invites you to overcome that perhaps, or to rework something in your paperwork or in your approach to something that stops reinforcing those mechanisms of colonialism. So my final question is artists, writers, or advocates that we may not be aware of that we should be aware of. Well, one of my favorites, probably many out there are already aware of her, but Leanne Batasama Soke Simpson, I think is just amazing. And every time I hear her and see her present and read anything she's written, she cracks my heart open again and again and again, every time. And I think anything that Leanne Patasomosake Simpson puts out, it should be a mandatory reading really? in Canada almost. <laughs> well, Troy, thank you so much for spending time with me today. It's been really great to get to know you. Very, very interesting life. Well, thank you so much again for inviting me here. Much of Troy's work is around truth, justice, and reconciliation, and both the Truth and Reconciliation Commission of Canada 94 Calls to Action and the UN Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. In light of recent discoveries of children who perished unknown and unaccounted for at residential schools across Canada, it is even more important that all of us educate ourselves on the historical truths and in whatever way we can move towards actioning with urgency all of the calls to action. There are so many resources out there to find out the truth and what you can do about it. Proactively seek them out and then do whatever you can in whatever way to move forward reconciliation and one day, we hope, decolonization. As Troy said, find the systemic racism, neocolonialism in your world, it shouldn't be hard, and find a creative way to change it, to unlearn it, and rebuild better relationships and ways of being together. I will put links to the writer and her work Troy mentioned here today, as well as an excellent webinar Troy hosted around land recognition in the podcast details for this episode. Merci Marc Maziad pour la musique. Thank you, Don Saunders-Dahl, for the podcast artwork. Thank you for joining me today. In the spirit of reconciliation, I acknowledge as a white settler with privilege that I live, work, and play on the traditional territories of the Blackfoot Confederacy, Siksika Kainai Pekani Nations, the Sutina Nation, the Stony Nakoda, Bearspachaniki Wesley Nations, the Métis Nation Region 3, and all people who make their homes in the Treaty 7 region of Southern Alberta. Continue this important learning journey with me in future Ally to Accomplice podcasts. <laughs>